my morning was chaos, guys. It's going to come out later at like a closing illustration. So I'm just prepping you. Um, oh, see, that's what I'm saying. This whole time this morning, I, I, sent, I sent a text to Mal this morning. And I was like, Mal, Satan's at work. Um, and then that happened. I'm not that guy. But if you are that guy, pray, pray, pray. Um, or girl. If you're that girl, you can pray as well. Super excited about this journey. Um, been in the gospel of Luke for about four years now, personally, talking to different people who have, um, you know, really been in the gospel of Luke as well. And, and as a church, we're getting ready to enter into a journey through the gospel of Luke that is really going to span the next two years. Okay. And so the, the goal is that we would be in Luke from now until Easter 2024. Let me give an illustration um, of what that looks like, and then I'll frame the rest of our time. If you're like me and you have ADHD on steroids, silence terrifies you, right? And so you always need to have something going in the background. Right now in my life, uh, what I've noticed is that not only do I need to have music going in the background, I need to have my alchemy going in the background, a.k.a. like, you know, those therapeutic, like, young living, you know what I'm talking about, those situations. I don't even know the formal name for them anymore. What's the formal name for Essential oils. It's alchemy, but it's glorious, right? And so, so I need to have that in the background, but I also need to have, like, music playing. It helps me just focus, which is super weird. And there's moments where as the background music is playing, like, on my phone, like, I'll turn it up a little bit. I'm like, oh, that's my jam. And it's just a glorious experience. And, and, and that's kind of the picture I want for us as we journey through Luke. That really, it's the music of our church for the foreseeable future. And there's moments in our journey where we're just going to crank up the volume, right? And I mean, it's going to be explicit. It's going to be loud. We're going to dive in. And there's moments where it's going to really be in the background. So we won't necessarily preach from the gospel of Luke. We'll really deal with stuff that's like more central to what's going on in our city, what's going on in our church, and maybe even what's going on in my heart, among other things. But it's always going to be around. It's always going to be around. And so whether or not we are preaching explicitly from Luke on a Sunday or not, it is going to be the music of our church, the brook in Miami. But I, I would hope that it would be the, the music of a movement. And what I mean is that I, I sincerely hope that, that Luke's gospel would move us to tremendous action in our lives, in our cities forevermore, Period that this would, would almost be the, the music that allows us to step deeply, more excellently into who God has called us to be. And we'll hopefully see some of that today. What I wanna do, I, I titled this sermon, I titled sermons, I usually don't tell the titles of my sermons, but I figure I should start. Um, I titled, titled this sermon, The Roadmap and the Audience, O Excellent Theophilus. And really, that's, that's kind of what I wanna do today. I just wanna lay out the roadmap quickly of what is going to be the next two years. And then the rest of our time, we're just going to dig into the audience and, and really glean some, what I believe are some transformative ideas from the audience that Luke is writing to. And when I say the audience that he's writing to, I'm talking about the audience generally, but then also the audience that's captured in what Claude Daniel CD read earlier, um, verses one through four. Let me give the roadmap um, briefly, because some of y'all like, you said we have ADHD. Are we really going to make it through Luke? Yes, I promise. Um, 
kind of broke down our roadmap through Luke in five phases. Now, if if you're a nerd, I think I'm a nerd, but like then you look at the Gospels, you look at different writings, and people have all of these breakdowns, um, but I have five, so, so here we go. There's five phases that's going to take us through um, this journey, and each phase has an organizing ideas. Um, and so phase, phase one is chapters one um, through 413, and the organizing idea, and it's really going to be felt today, the God who fulfills his promises, the God who fulfills his promises, um, Luke begins his account. There's a dedication that's coming. Um, but, man, those first few chapters, you know, like you just see the hand of God behind the scenes. And he's very intentional to, to, to say this is not just random acts that we are, we are experiencing. This is the thread of divine design, and it's glorious. The God who fulfills his promises, that's phase one. And phase one is really going to take us into the early spring. So we hope to end the year with Luke chapter um, four. Uh, phase two, um, it's chapters 414 through 915. Maybe it's my beard. I don't know what it is. Maybe I should shave this bad boy. My wife likes it, so I still have it in Jesus' name. ADHD strong right now. And so... That's going to take us from spring 2023 into the summer 2023. And the organizing idea around Luke chapters 4, 14 through 950 is really a question. Who is this man? This is the beginning part of his life and ministry. Um, there's various themes that show out through the gospel of Luke, and a lot of them are captured in, in phase two. Um, this is the height of his popularity. People are clamoring after him, antagonists as well. But everyone eventually collides with the question Jesus poses, who do you say that I am? That's why everybody's a theologian when it's all said and done. Everybody has thoughts about God. Some say no. <laughs> Some say yes, and then they say Allah. Some say yes, and then they say themselves, what's up, God? Brooklyn, stand up, right? And some say, yes, Jesus. But everybody's a theologian. The question is, are you a good one or a bad one? And Jesus forces us to wrestle with the who is that man? Um, phase three. Phase three is, is actually going to be the shortest part of our, of our time in the journey of Luke. It's chapters 9, 51 through chapters 10, 24. Um, and the organizing idea is follow me. Jesus, Jesus has just set his face to Jerusalem, right? So we're exiting the, the Galilean portion of his ministry, and he's like, yo, I'm going to Jerusalem. Death awakes me, but resurrection awaits me as well. Renewal is coming, but he set his face. And, and from that determination and focus that we see from him, he then starts to invite his disciples to do the same. So you start to hear a blitz of some of the most famous sayings Follow me. If anybody wants to follow, they must take up their cross. And it's crazy, but he is calling people to intimate association and a more intentional walk, phase three. Phase four um, is chapters 10, 25 through chapters 22. It is by far going to be the longest portion of our journey. It's, it spans 12 weeks. It's some of his most famous teachings. Luke in general um, has a ton of parables that are not contained in the other gospels. And so the organizing ideas is this. It's parables, principles, people, 
and the kingdom of God. And phase five, where we'll, where we'll land our series, um, that's going to actually cover fall 2023 to 2024. But phase five, where we land, is going to be chapters 22 to chapter 24. Um, and the organizing idea is the fullness of time. The fullness of time. All of time orients around what happened at Golgotha, where Jesus hung, bled, and died. This is the axis of human history. It's a fullness of time. And so we'll, we'll see his betrayal. We'll see his final moments with friends. We'll see his farewell address, which also contains a command. We'll see tombs. We'll see the road to Emmaus. It is the culmination of the earthly life of the king of heaven. But the culmination of the earthly life of the king of heaven is a catalyst to the earthly life's of the people of God. Say that again. The culmination of the earthly life of the king of heaven is a catalyst to the earthly lives of the people of God. And so when we walk away from Luke, the aim is that his words, Jesus, Jesus' words, his, his work, his ways would so saturate us that it would be wind in our sails. It would be the fuel for transformative life. So if you're a Christian, th this is that you would grow stronger in more excellent ways. If you're not, if you're just kind of like hanging around, kind of, you know, dipping your big toe in the water. Is it cold? Is it hot? I don't swim, so I don't understand that experience, but I've seen it. Dive in. Now, I want to say dive in today because tomorrow's not promised. But the goal is at least lock in and let's see what Jesus is saying through this account and make a decision at the end. Make a decision. Don't, don't live in the in-between, on the fence. A friend of mine once told me about his conversion story. He said, man, I, I, I thought I was living on the fence and then I realized there is no fence. He's, he was right. So make a decision. All right. That was for those who think that I'm just super random and there's not a plan. I promise there's a plan in Jesus' name. Now let's dive into the audience. The rest of our time today is going to be examining the audience. Who are they? What, what is Luke saying to them? What are the ideas that are birthed from what he's saying? And can we? Can we walk away with greater curiosity and confidence? One of the people in the audience, or one of the audiences, excuse me, is not explicitly stated in the text today that CD read, but it's where we start because it's actually the audience that to me saturates Luke and really defines our church and our city. I'm going to read a passage and then we'll, we'll get to work. Luke chapter 4, 18 through 19, it reads like this. This is actually one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament. Conversation after conversation with, with spiritual leaders and pastors ultimately comes down to how you interpret this passage that I found. And I don't make that claim to, for shock value. This has just been at it for a long time now. 
and this is what I've seen consistently, it comes down to how you understand and ultimately apply this passage. Practically, this passage, among a few others, but this passage gave birth to the Brook Church. It gave birth and bones to an idea in my heart in Atlanta, Georgia, which is full, don't move there. For all of my Miamians that find they were in Tampa or Atlanta, this passage, read with me. Luke 4, 8 through 8, 18 through 19 says like this. This is Jesus' inaugural address. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. The concept of anointed, which is super fascinating in the, in the Hebrew text, actually develops the word that we get for Messiah. So it's this idea he's covered me, he's, he's set me apart, he's saved me, he is he has, he has made me for something. So there's a, there's a unique divine end that Jesus is identifying. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me, he has set me apart to proclaim good news to the poor. If you have a Bible, underline the poor. To play, proclaim good news, evangelion, to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I'm getting ahead of myself a little bit because it's going to come when we dive into Luke's first few words and one through four. But here, Luke is doing something powerful. He is grabbing like a hodgepodge of Old Testament prophecy. So there's some Isaiah 61 here. There's some, there's some Isaiah 58 here. There, there, there's some Amos in here. There's Mount. He is just grabbing all of these, and he, and he is saying Jesus is, is laying out the vision for his words and his work and his ways that will follow. Now, how you interpret this it's fascinating. Some take it literal to the point where they say, yo, yeah, that's, that's the mission of God. Yeah. Like it's just straight to the margins. And so it's really only about poor people and this, that, and a third. And, and some people allegorize this. Really, he's just trying to save spiritual captives. What? What the scriptures invite us to do is to join those realities. There are spiritual and social implications that Luke himself, all throughout his account, is trying to get us to see, and they collide here. So what sits on this is Le Leviticus 25, the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee. If you're familiar with Old Testament Jewish history, the year of Jubilee is after 49 years, on year 50, all debts go free, which is pretty crazy. Pretty crazy. But the idea of setting everyone free, because that's the freedom that he's talking about. The, the Greek word here really talks primarily about prisoners, those who are in captive to jail. But the idea that Luke is getting at is something beyond that, which is why it can't merely be, well, we need to go to all of the juvenile detention centers because that's what God, we can't do that here. It's not wrong, it's just not rooted here. But the idea is rooted in Leviticus 25 and, and, and freedom is always for the purpose of renewal. 
it's release for renewal. And so you're starting afresh. You're being changed and you're moving in light of a fresh start. And for the people of old, it was, hey, man, you might have had some hard times and you had to sell your land. But, man, God gave that to you. And we want to be a different type of people. And so after 50 years, in your generation, you may not experience it. But the generation that's coming, we want them to have a fresh start, just a year of Jubilee. And, and Jesus is saying in these words, like, yo, like, I am envisioning renewal and release for an entire group of people that their lives would be forever changed because they're receiving what he calls is good news. The audience that is, that is there, um, which shows up all throughout the gospel of Luke, is captured in that word, the poor. I had you underline it. Now, when we think poor, we immediately think of economic circumstances. That is not the best way to define the poor in the scriptures, and it's certainly not who Luke is thinking about. The, the poor are not just those who are economically disadvantaged. They're those who are socially disadvantaged as well. They don't fit in. And so as I, as I look about it, look at that, I, there, there's really two categories that, that make up this larger idea of the poor for me. They're the disinherited, right, and, and the other. Those become the categories that shape the audience that Luke is is, is, is preaching to the disinherited and the other. Regarding the disinherited, Howard Thurman, um, scholar, theologian, um, if you're familiar with um, the late Martin Luther King Jr., um, he was reading his writings as he was on his way to Montgomery. In his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, he says this. Um, he says, to those who need profound succor and strength to enable them to live in the present with dignity and creativity, Christianity has often been sterile and of little avail. So essentially, the disinherited are, are, are those who are, who are weak, who are impoverished, who are oppressed, which is also seen here, who are on the margins of a society. They don't have the power to fight for themselves. They are vulnerable. And what he says is, unfortunately, what it seems like is in historic moments, those people have turned to Christianity and they have not found strength for them or resolve or hope. He says, this is a matter of tremendous significance, for it reveals to what extent a religion that was born of a people acquainted with persecution and suffering has become the cornerstone of a civilization and of nations whose very position in modern life has often been secured by a ruthless use of power applied to weak and defenseless peoples. He's saying the fact that those who are most marginalized among us turn to Christianity and don't find strength and resolve and hope speaks to the massive distortion that, 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 that is painted for them regarding what Christianity actually is. And that matters to me. That matters to me. It should matter to us that Christianity has Jewish roots. I can't tell you how many times in the last seven years particularly I have conversation after conversation convincing people of basic fact 
that Christianity was not birthed from Europe. It has Jewish roots. The Jewish story is saturated with oppression and persecution. Which is why when they hear this, it it moves them to hope. The kingdom of God has social implications. It is a sacred reality rooted in the spirit of Christ. But heaven's coming down. And it will transform the world we inhabit. Jesus, at the end of his life, when he goes to heaven, before that moment, he's eating fish. It's not spiritual fish. It's real fish, real snapper. Enjoying it, glorified body. Look at the holes in my hand. That's the hope of every Christian. Your back is hurting one day, Christian. And I mean that with sincerity. Your back will never hurt again. You have arthritis, eradicated. This is the hope. And you're not going to be like Casper, like, you know, just kind of hovering out there, like a disembodied phantasm, glorified body. And so the audience that, that, that he is getting at is the disinherited. It is those who are often disenfranchised, whether it's through economic disadvantage or, or, or whatever. They are vulnerable. And they are actually most sensitive to the beauty of the gospel. But it's also the other. So, so they may not be economically disadvantaged, but they don't fit into the mold, so they're marginalized. That's why all throughout the gospel of Luke, you see Jesus moving towards tax collectors and sinners, the others. They mark us. Because this is the audience of Jesus. It becomes the audience of Luke, and what he's doing in Luke is he is painting a powerful picture of a God on the move for rescue and renewal. This is synthesized in Luke 19.10. Luke 19.10 says this, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That is a rescue mission. That people who do not know the God of the universe, people who are not putting their faith in Jesus Christ, he says, I'm after you. I see you. I'm seeking you. I want you. The Son of Man title is used some 25 times in the Gospel of Luke, more than any other Gospel. But there's two times where it comes out, where it's used that are super critical for us to understand the gospel. The first one is here, where we see his mission. The second one is in chapter 7, 34, when we see his methodology. It reads like this. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors. So his mission, rescue and renewal. His primary means of rescue and renewal method, eating and drinking. Throughout the Gospel of Luke, there are some 19 meal occasions. 13 of them are unique to Luke's account. He is making a point. 
that Jesus is establishing a community around a table with dinner and discourse and dialogue. That matters. Because I think of Psalm 68, and I think of our church. Say this, then we'll get to Luke 1. We're going to cruise through Luke 1. You're like, man, so much time. We're going to cruise through Luke 1, I promise. Psalm 68 says this. Sing to God, sing praises to him, lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. Extol before him. Notice the introduction in verse 5. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. In other words, God identifies with the disinherited. You're going to introduce yourself, fam, like you said, I'm working on my doctorate right now. When I'm done, Dr. Mucci, Dr. Pastor Mucci, that's the new way that y'all are going to start to refer to me in Jesus' name. For all the money we're spending and these sleepless nights writing all these essays, all right? Dead serious, sort of. But you want to introduce yourself, you're going to start with what is most significant about you. This introduction that consistently happens regarding God is he identifies with the disinherited. What is most significant about him is his heart that moves towards the marginalized. Father of the fatherless, the protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. And verse 6, God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. Does Psalm 68, 4 through 6 sound like Luke 4 to you? And so the mission of of God, this rescue and renewal, terminates with people existing in a family. And the primary means to bring people into this family is eating and drinking. It's conversations and cafecito. It's griot and good dialogue. It's wine and wisdom. It's pasta and proclaiming the excellencies of the God of the universe. Here's why this grabs me. Jan Nijman, former professor at University of Miami, he wrote this book called Miami Mistress of Americas, and he says this. Transience has always been Miami's genus or genius loci, a constant coming and going dating back to the times of Ponce de Leon. It has only intensified in more recent global times. Very few people here seem to plan a permanent stay. For most, the city is merely an interlude in their unfolding lives. Our city is filled with the marginalized with the disinherited. Our city is filled with the others and our city is filled with lonely people. Lonely people. As their lives are unfolding here until they get to their next destination, wasting away. And I see Luke's gospel, I see Luke four, I see Psalm 68 
And I see a God who is ambitious about grabbing those people, lonely people, and placing them into a family. And it is the back end of a meal, man. And I am so tired of overcomplicating the simple. Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you know their name? I love Christian fellowship. I do. And if you're in college, it's like, oh, let's do game night, which is like mafia. But now it's like, you know, among us and all this other stuff. I love it. Do you know your neighbor's name? Do you know their story? Have they ever sat across your dinner table and had a conversation with you? Do you know what breaks their heart? Do you know what makes them tick? Do you even know their job? Jesus is intentional with his table. We should be as well. Rosaria Butterfield She says this, those who live out radical, ordinary hospitality see their homes not as theirs at all, but as God's gift to use for the furtherance of his kingdom. They open doors, they seek the underprivileged, they know the gospel comes with a house key. Her story is powerful. I recommend her book. Hospitality sits on the gospel of Luke. It sits on the audience that he's after. Hospitality is more than entertaining. Hospitality is a combination of these two Greek words, philo and xenos. And so you get philoxenia. In other words, it's love for the stranger. Maybe when I said philoxenia, you maybe read it backwards. Xenophobia, right? That, that, might, that, that, that fear of the stranger. But that's not what you get here. You get a love for the stranger. And it's just, it just oozes from Luke. Would the Brook Church at the end of this series be those who see their homes as means to God changing the world? And will we start today? Go learn your neighbor's name and begin praying for them and loving them and serving them and invite them over for meals. You're like, man, that sounds scary. Maybe. Hopefully your neighbor isn't a serial killer. But you know what I know? We do all sorts of mental, spiritual gymnastics to get out of obedience. And that's one of them. All right. Luke 1, 1 through 4. His audience is not just those people, but his audience is someone specific It reads like this, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of those things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the world have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed these things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Um, He identifies this audience of Theophilus. Now, there's two ways that you could take Theophilus. Theophilus' name translates to friend or lover of God. Um, how you take 
um, the audience or how you take the off list actually does matter in many ways, but it doesn't matter in others. And the reason being, like, whether you believe the off list was a, a, a legitimate person, an actual entity or not, it doesn't necessarily change the essence or the core of the account. Now, he says most excellent Theophilus. He uses that moniker most excellent three times, or four if you count two Theophilus, but he directs it to two other people. He directs it to Festus, and he directs it to Felix. Uh, most people have an early date for the Gospel of Luke, written around 60, like AD 60, 62, somewhere around there. So it's before um, like Nero goes crazy, because Nero's going to go crazy. He's going to martyr Paul. He's going to martyr Peter. And, and, and so a lot of people have an earlier date. They look at the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote, and they see that he's not including Paul's death in there. So it seems like he wrote this before Paul died. And so they, most people, the, the primary reading is that Theophilus is a person. However, like I said, it doesn't change the core. So if you don't believe he's a person, it's fine. If you do, it's fine. What we have to agree on is he's a Gentile Christian. He's a Gentile Christian. So his, his primary audience is Christians. Non-Jewish Christians. And his account is the work, the ways, and words of Jesus Christ, which means Christians need that. His account is the gospel. And he's writing the gospel to Christians. We need the gospel, Christians. We need the good news of Jesus Christ every day till the day we see him face to face. If we forget that, what is left for us is effort and energy detached from grace. What is left for us is our own strength. What is left for us is our own creativity. We need the good news. Don't forget that. He puts a target on a Christian, and then he says, why? Verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. I'm writing this so you can have confidence. Here's the thing about confidence. Confidence doesn't eliminate wrestles. It determines how you wrestle. Say that again. Confidence doesn't eliminate the wrestles. It determines how you wrestle. Told you this morning was chaos. Went biking this morning. It's my go-to method every Sunday. Um, it just helps me be refreshed, et cetera, et cetera. A friend of mine let me borrow his bike because he heard my stories about, you know, like getting hawked by these other people on bikes. And so I'm like, I'm going to go test this bike out this morning. I'm on the, on the road. I'm getting it. I'm like, oh, this is kind of cool. I feel a little bit better. It's a little bit lighter. Hit a flat. Got a flat. So I'm like, oh, this sucks. Now, I didn't know I had a flat because I had my music on. But I saw these people passing me, and I'm like, why are they still passing me? So I'm angry. Like, I'm like, this shouldn't be happening. I got a better bike. I'm going faster. And so I'm like, ugh. So I start pedaling harder. And I'm like, man, I can't catch up to them. And then I'm like, man, you know what? God, my only competition is me. So I start feeding myself, you know, stuff. So I feel, like, you know. Anyway, turn down my music, and I hear the boom, 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 boom. I'm like, so I could have heard all my music. And I'm like, I know that sound. And so I stop, and I'm like, oh, snap, it's, I have a flat. I had a couple options. Turned around, started heading back home. That was the first thing I did. A couple options. First option was try to plow through and get home. 
I really thought about doing that. Second option was call my wife. That was a terrifying option. It's the option I took, though. So I called her. I said, hey, babe. She said, babe, where are you? Is everything okay? I'm alive. I'm fine. That's how I'm calling you. I got a flat. Can you come get me? I'm right by the Benihana's. Beautiful scene, by the way. She was like, absolutely. Now, I had confidence that she would come. I had, I had absolute confidence, but I was terrified because I know that she's always scared when I get on my bike. So I was terrified. But I had confidence that led me to an action. Are you tracking with me? It didn't eliminate the wrestle of going back and forth. I'm actually going to call or I'm going to try to plow home. But it determined how I wrestled. I ended up at the right spot with the right decision. You tracking with me? Luke is writing this so that we could have confidence. So we're going to wrestle for the rest of our lives. But when we grab this account and we grab his words, we should have confidence so it determines how we wrestle and where we end up. Christian, what you believe is true. It's true. Look at the pathway that that Luke is using to build their confidence. This is what he says. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative, that narrative language matters. What he's saying is people are putting together a story First of all, when I die, some of you are going to be like, man, let's put a story together for like Moochie. Come on, man. Maybe, maybe more to y'all, maybe more to my family. But I doubt the entire globe is going to come together and put a story together regarding me that is going to outlive me. That's weird. But something happened that caused people to come together and say, we need to get an account of this. We need to memorialize this, not just for us, but for generations to come. It's a narrative. Now here's where this bothers us. Because other people are creating this account. We have Luke, we have Mark, we have Matthew, we have John. And sometimes they seem competing when they're really complementary. And there's some reasons where you're like, man, that's a little confusing. And I get it. But part of it is there's something in us called chronological arrogance. And so we look back, like, look at those people. <sighs> you, you mean that you really, when you wanted to make a phone call, you had to go home and grab this large shoe-looking thing off of a base and put that to your ear? What is that? You know that those existed before cell phones, Right? Do the exercise. How do you talk on the phone? This is how I do it. This is how some of this next generation does it. What is this? You're slapping yourself, right? But we look back with chronological arrogance. How could that happen? What did you do? And we immediately think we have a better way of how it should have happened. And we dismiss what they did. Tim Mackey is such a dynamic teacher. He says this, regarding the gospel accounts, define the gospel accounts by what they actually did, not by what I think they ought to have done. Now, here's why that matters. The gospel accounts are not empirical evidence devoid of bias. What we want is just give me all of the facts and let me make a decision. That is not how they are recording history. 
First of all, that's not how anybody records history. They are recording history by saying what happened and then attaching meaning to it. They are interpreting events to paint the story. We all do that. If you're married, you have a way of telling how you first met your spouse. And if you've been married for a very long time, you know whose part is whose. So this is where they start off the conversation. This is where you intersect. And then you do the, ha-ha, I wasn't really like that. And blah, right? And sometimes you condense it. And sometimes it's longer. But what you're doing is you are telling the story with the end in mind. And that is what they have done. This is the gospel accounts. Capturing all of these stories. Say, oh, man, there was this time where he, he fed 5,000 people, but him feeding 5,000 people, that wasn't for random sake. That was him showing that he's the bread of life. And so we're going to put it right next to I'm the water of life. This is the gospel of John. We see this in Luke, Luke chapter 7, where Jesus is now at this table. And then immediately after that, he invites this. This is consistent to what they're doing. They're trying to tell a story. So he says, you can have certainty because many have compiled a narrative that is orderly. Furthermore, he says, this isn't stuff that's happened. This is stuff that's been fulfilled or accomplished. The things that have been accomplished among us. So Matthew's gospel, Matthew's gospel is explicit correspondence. He is, he is, he is grabbing the Old Testament and he is explicitly, consistently like weaving it into the story. Richard Hayes, he, he's a New Testament professor, beast. When he talks about Luke's gospel, he says it's not explicit, it's implicit correspondence. In other words, the Old Testament is all throughout Luke's gospel. And there's moments where you, like you, he says it, but for the most part, it's just on the background. And what it does is it evokes the reader to, to, to see that all of what Jesus is doing is connected to a larger story. That's why if you look at the first few like, chapters, fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. All of the prophecies, fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. And then when you get to the end of Luke, Luke chapter 24, and Jesus has resurrected and he's on the road with his disciples, he's going to go back through human history. And he said, all of the Old Testament prophets fulfilled in me. That's powerful. That's powerful. He removes Christianity from happenstance and he roots it in human history. Events that happened according to somebody's plan, fulfilled. Apply that then close. I like Star Wars. Um... I know some people don't like the prequels. And some people don't like Ray or Finn and the new trilogy. And I get it. I get it because the first trilogy was so amazing. The Luke, you are, like, I'm your father moment. Amazing. And you could watch some of the movies and they're so self-contained that you could kind of get a gist of what the other movies were talking about. But you lose the depth 
of the Star Wars Skywalker saga if you don't see episode one, episode two, episode three, episode four, episode five, episode six, episode seven, episode eight, episode nine. Similar with Avengers. Loved Infinity War. Y'all track with me? Great movie. But there's some nuances that came from the first Avengers. You lose the depth when you detach things from their larger story and context. There is a type of Christianity that says, let's just live in the Gospels. And I want to say, you can't do that without looking at the rest of the Bible. And that type of Christianity is in my generation and the generations that are following, where they are so frustrated with how people have weaponized Christianity that they look at the scriptures and they pick and choose what is relevant. And the picture of God painted in the Old Testament seems to be like this angry being that wants to hurt and harm people. But I like the picture of Jesus that's painted. Don't do that. Jesus didn't do that to himself. We shouldn't do that to him. And so if you're brave, as we're going through Luke, grab Isaiah. Grab 2 Chronicles. Grab Genesis. And as you read through those books, you'll see the story of Jesus come alive. I close with this. God is a promise keeper and the gospels testify to that. Just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. There was people who saw and they were changed forevermore and there's people who saw and it did nothing for them. But at the end of Luke's gospel, he brings this witness language back and he says, hey, this is what I want people to become. That they may not have been eyewitnesses of Jesus's life, but they can be witnesses of his work in their lives. Please, Brooke family, linger with me through Luke. And when we're done, would we be witnesses of glory? Evidenced in the simple things, like knowing our neighbors' names and inviting them to our house for meals. Confident, confident in the God who created the world and inhabits our lives. Confident people change the world. Would God grow us in that way? Pray with me, Father. I just so want this for us. And I know I don't want it more than you do. I know I don't want it more than you do. I know it. But God, I just so want this for us. I want us like just gripped by this gospel. Give us strength for the long haul, for this journey. Give us tools to wrestle, to talk. Give us wisdom as we preach. Give us brevity 
as we preach. Build something beautiful. God, would this journey be a closing of a chapter in the life of our church and an opening of a new one where we don't think about what was, but we look forward to what you're doing and who you are and the here and now. So I pray for everyone who's going to be on this journey with us. Bless them, oh God. If they're Christian, strengthen them. If they're not, challenge them, oh God. Bring them into the family. In your name we pray, amen.